You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 55. I was 38 weeks in one day. We had tickets to Glen Gary Glen Ross on Broadway with Al Pacino. I was having contractions like as soon as I left the doctor's office. My husband was at work. You know, I texted him that exciting text. I was like, something's happening. He's like, are we still going to the show? I'm like, of course we're going to the show. We have tickets. We always go to the show for which we have tickets. Nothing will keep us from the show. We went to the show and the contractions didn't really start getting strong until like after the intermission. So the last half of the show, I don't remember any of it. We were in like the back row, so I could kind of stand up a little bit. I was squeezing my husband's hand for every contraction, just to let him know that there was one there. You know, just like, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. It's kind of been like a fun, oh, there's something happening, kind of, you know, way. And welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Are you following us on Instagram yet? We have lots of educational content there, so connect with us over at Birth Matters NYC. Today, we continue our fertility journey series. In this and next week's episode, birth and fertility doula Allison Weir begins sharing stories of her two babies' IVF conception and birth stories. Just need to give another trigger alert that this first story includes some stories of loss in the process of trying to conceive. If you listened to episode 47, you heard a birth story that happened on the heels of Hurricane Sandy. Allison's first baby's birth that she'll share today occurred immediately before the same hurricane hit. Allison's first birth story is one of an efficient first labor and unmedicated vaginal birth in a hospital setting. The labor was seemingly caused by her OB sweeping her membranes around 38 weeks and begins the day she and her husband had tickets to attend the Broadway play Glen Gary Glen Ross starring Al Pacino. She also shares how Hurricane Sandy hit the day after they came home and how the blackout the hurricane caused created some interesting memories. So now let's jump in. Welcome, Allison. Hi, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So would you please just give us a little bit of background on yourself professionally as well as personally? And when I say personally, maybe a little bit about where you are in your parenting journey, how many little ones you have, and maybe a little bit about your recent move too. All right. So my name's Allison Weir. I have two kids. Zoe is seven and Kenny is six. And I am a birth and postpartum doula, lactation counselor and fertility doula. I've been working as a doula in New York City since 2016, and in January 2020, just a few months ago, my husband and I and the kids moved to Costa Rica, so we live here now. (laughs) And I love that adventurous spirit. (laughs) (laughs) This year has been an adventure for everyone, but yes, it it was an adventure. 
It just seems so fortuitous that you beat the pandemic to the punch. You're like, no, I'm going to escape and go to someplace prettier, someplace more peaceful before all of this craziness hits. My gosh, if we had only known that this was going to happen, right? We had planned for years and just happened to pick January 2020. And when we got here, the world changed. Wild. Wild. Wow. So we talked previously about, you know, how we wanted today to look, and you shared with me that you were on another podcast called Infertile AF, and it was such a wonderful episode. I will be sure to link to that in the show notes, but she shares all the very detailed journey in terms of trying to conceive her two babies and what that all looked like. So please check that out if you're interested in all the details. It's such a great interview. So today instead, so that we're not repeating things, we're going to focus really on the details of your birth stories and a little bit of background kind of summary of how you got there, but mostly focusing on the birth stories. And then I would love to talk about how you got into doula work and what a fertility doula is, because I don't know that many people are familiar. I feel like it's a newer profession. It's not something that's been around for a long time, but as people are experiencing that whole journey, it's such a valuable thing to have support, emotional support, logistical, all that stuff. Do you want to start off by talking about your first fertility journey and then going into your first birth story? Yeah, I had my first miscarriage when I was around 28 years old. It was at the end of my first marriage. I got pregnant right as we were breaking up and had a miscarriage at about 14 weeks. And at the time, we had not been planning to have children. It was an accident, (laughs) but at the time, I really hadn't put my mind around what it was going to look like for me, whether I was going to have children or whether we were going to start a family, and it was at the end of the marriage, so it was kind of just like, oh, well, we're not going to worry about that now. We'll we'll focus on things later. When I met my current husband, so I was, I don't know, I'm going to guess 34, so several years later. We met, we hit it off right away. You know, when you know, you know, it's like this guy makes me want to have children. We're going to have babies. So the first thing I did was go to my OB and just talk to him about the previous miscarriage to see if there were any reasons that he thought that I might have trouble getting pregnant. I had had a ruptured ovarian cyst at some point after that too. And I just wanted to make sure that everything was going to be okay. He gave me two thumbs up. It's like, you know, give it a go, start trying to get pregnant. So we got pregnant within like the first two or three months trying. It worked right away. We had a miscarriage at eight weeks. We got pregnant a couple months later, had another miscarriage around eight weeks. We lived in Atlanta and Georgia at the time, and we found out my husband was going to be changing jobs. It was going to be taking us to New York City. After that last miscarriage, our doctor referred us to a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a specialist that deals with recurrent miscarriages or any other reasons that you might need assistance in getting pregnant. So with that referral, we decided to wait until we got to New York City because we knew it was probably going to be a longer relationship and we wanted just to kind of be there, be settled. We made an appointment. It took us six months to get in. Luckily, my husband's insurance covered fertility treatments. That's a a problem that a lot of people have is they're very expensive and not all insurance policies cover them. But he worked at a tech company and uh, a lot of the tech companies can be competitive with benefits because they want to attract, you know, the best employees. So he had a really good 
benefits package that allowed us to seek out fertility treatment and have it covered by insurance. We went and what they do first is they really just test you for any genetic issues. They check your anatomy to make sure you know, your fallopian tubes are open, that you're ovulating, that your uterus doesn't have any growths, fibroids or anything that could be hindering your pregnancy. They found nothing with us. They also checked Ken out and they found nothing with him. Sperm count was good, motility, all of the things that they checked for. We both got A pluses, but you know, I had three miscarriages at this point to show for it. And this was back in, I guess it was 2010, is that right? Maybe 2009. And at that time, our insurance company required that we do three intrauterine inseminations before we could move on to IVF. So we went ahead and started that process and went through three IUIs and did not have a pregnancy, not even a blip, just nothing, nothing worked. We found out around that time that Ken's company was changing insurance policies. And unfortunately, the doctor we had been seeing was no longer going to be covered under the insurance policy. We had to change doctors if we wanted to continue to use our insurance. But the benefit was that it started our insurance over from scratch. <laughs> so Yay! Years, right? So we got to double dip. Um, but our doctor recommended another doctor also in New York City that took our insurance. And the doctor that we were leaving recommended that we go straight to IVF now that we had finished the IUIs that we had to do for insurance coverage. And also recommended genetic testing of the embryos just to see if it was a genetic problem that we were having that was just undetectable in the you know, blood work that they did coming out of the gate. So we did that. We moved to a new doctor for my first IVF cycle. I had, I don't know, like 15, 20 embryos fertilized and we did genetic testing on them and only three came back as normal. So um, they transferred two and we froze one. Spoiler, that's Kenny. He was in that first batch. Um, <laughs> I did not get a pregnancy out of the first IVF or the second with genetically tested embryos. We had two again and no pregnancy. And then for the third IVF, our reproductive endocrinologist recommended we see a reproductive immunologist to look for any underlying autoimmune disorders that could be causing my body to either reject or attack a pregnancy. We went through the testing for that and they found some things that they felt needed to be treated. And I did a whole bunch more medication, <laughs> daily shots and a monthly infusion. I had to do it twice before the embryo transfer and then every month if the pregnancy worked. So they transferred, we got two genetically normal embryos again, which seemed to be like every time two were normal. So we transferred those in and I was pregnant with twins. Things were going pretty good. I was getting to see my reproductive endocrinologist and also my reproductive immunologist. So I was getting ultrasounds, you know, at two different doctors. You know, I was so anxious with pregnancy at this point from all of the miscarriages that I had had in the past. that it was just every step of the way. Anytime I could see that little heartbeat, I just wanted to, you know, just let me see the baby. If I could have sat there and just had an ultrasound machine to look inside all the time, I would have. About 12, 12 or 13 weeks and I started having some spotting and went into the doctor's office and they could not find a heartbeat for one of the babies. It was 
right around the time that I was going to need to do the NT scan, the nuchal translucency scan that they do with the blood work to judge risk for a number of chromosomal abnormalities that could happen. We knew that we only had one baby left inside and we knew we lost one. They wanted to do the test anyways. And we went through with the testing and the results came back that there was a high risk for some genetic abnormality. And gosh, on top of finding out that we lost one baby and then we have the genetic abnormality test <laughs> coming back positive. Um, That's a lot. <laughs> oh, wow. It was, it was so much. And if you remember, we had transferred genetically normal embryos. And the way they test the embryos is they take one little cell out of the embryos when they're teeny, teeny, tiny, when they're only like eight cells. They take one and they test it. But those tests are pretty accurate. So you know, we talked with our, our OB and our reproductive endocrinologist about what our options were at that point. And they all recommended the CBS testing followed by an amniocentesis. And this was like one of the hardest, hardest times for Ken and I, because we've been through all of this trauma already. And now here we are having to have a discussion over whether or not we were going to risk miscarriage to have a CVS or an amnio. And we had to sit down and talk about what our, our feelings were if we did have a genetically abnormal pregnancy. Finding out if that test was positive, was that going to affect whether we continue the pregnancy or not? And, you know, people have to think about these things every day. And this is not an easy conversation. And you come into it with what you feel, but you don't know if your partner, you know, feels the same. These are just not things that come up over wine, you know, right, dinner. Right. Like, it's complicated yeah. enough emotionally, even just for one person. And then to add that dynamic that you're referring to, I just can't even imagine. It was really, really tough. We agreed that we both wanted to continue the pregnancy, which in our minds ruled out CBS or amniocentesis just because there was risk of miscarriage with those. As small as it was, it was still a risk. So we decided not to move forward with those tests. So back in 2012, the non-invasive pregnancy testing, which is the blood test, uh, some people know it as maternity 21, those type of blood tests were not legal in New York State yet but it was legal in New Jersey. I called a hospital in New Jersey and I drove over to New Jersey to have the test done just to give myself as much information as I could about what was going on. The test came back negative for any abnormal genetic markers. So then I felt, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe everything's fine. So I just decided to go with that. That's my test. We're just going to like push through. I just, I really tried to stay as still as possible. <laughs> I didn't move a lot. I laid on my sofa. I watched a lot of television. I was so scared. You know, the other miscarriages that I had, I, I blamed little things that I had done that, you know, knowing, you know, now and knowing then that they probably had little to do with why I had the miscarriage, you know, I, I worked too much or I lifted something that was heavy or I had five glasses of wine before I knew I was pregnant. And I decided I'm not going to do anything that I will ever be able to say that I messed it up this time. Mm. That meant lots of ice cream and Netflix. 
So that's what I did. I laid on the sofa. That was fun. You know, we didn't really think about birth choices though until after I was 24 weeks. We had kind of marked 24 weeks as a viability day. Babies can live safely outside of the womb past 24 weeks. So that was kind of like the goal. Like we make Mm -hmm. it four weeks, then you know, we're good to go. And I didn't think anything about birth at all until 24 weeks. And then it was like, oh my God, we're going to have a baby and I haven't done anything. You know, we had an OB, which we were referred to by our reproductive endocrinologist because she was two floors down in the office building. I needed a pap smear before I could start the IVF treatment. And she was like, that's fine. Just go downstairs, get a pap smear, come back up. And that's how I chose my OB. You know, it it was like, we didn't have any kind of discussion on what my plans were. I mean, I didn't even know at that point. But after 24 weeks, one of my friends recommended the business of being born. I feel like so many birth stories start off with the business of being born. Thanks, Ricky. Yeah, Uh, right. Um, anyway, she recommended the documentary and I was in that collecting information phase. So I watched the documentary and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a lot. This is, you know, I want to have a home birth. (laughs) (laughs) We had been through so much, so much medical intervention in getting pregnant. You know, you know, the pregnancy, this pregnancy wasn't even created in my own body, right? We didn't even get to have sex to get pregnant. I felt like so many things had been taken away that I really wanted to make the birth as much about my body as I could. And I, I told, you know, my husband, I'm like, hey, we're having a home birth. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, he was a little nervous, which I understand. He, it's, it's really hard being a partner and watching the person you love go through all of the medical procedures and miscarriages and there's not much they can do mm-hmm. but be supportive and you know he would tell me over and over again I wish I could take it away I wish I could mm-hmm. let's do this to my body instead mm-hmm. you know, there were Plenty of days I would have been like, here it is, your turn. <laughs> you know, you do it. But you know, it wasn't possible. And it was just torture for him to watch. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that we worked together to, to make a, a birthing plan we both felt comfortable with. We ended up staying with my OB and planning a hospital birth. I was pretty convinced that I could. I was going to be able to do what I wanted to anyways, even though when I brought up home birth to my OB, she, her first remark was gross. It's going to be so messy. Who's going to clean up all of that stuff? Uh, So, you know, she was not supportive about that at all. But, you know, as the pregnancy went on, I was trying to kind of clarify what I wanted from a hospital birth and if I was going to be able to get that. And I decided that I wanted to try to have an unmedicated hospital birth because of a couple of things. I have a a huge medical phobia of doctors, doctors in hospitals. I had surgery when I was very young and it was a traumatic experience. 
and I have PTSD from those experiences, but I can't control it. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, this is something I should be able to control, but no, I, I, get, I get really, really anxious. And I was scared to have an epidural during labor because to me, that meant that I wouldn't be able to get up and move. Once I committed to that epidural, then I was going to be stuck wherever I was. And that scared me. It took away my, like the fight or flight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It took away the flight part. It just wasn't on the table. Not that I was actually going to run out of the hospital, (laughs) labor, but if I felt unsafe, I wanted to be able to go. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really talk about that much because when I told her I wanted to have an unmedicated birth, she told me, yeah, 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 I'll see you there. You'll be asking for the epidural. Okay, lady, whatever. We're just going to do this. Starting about 35 weeks, I started getting very anxious to have the baby come because I didn't have a lot of trust in my body. And it felt like the baby would be safer outside of my body. Because, you know, in my mind, it was my body's fault that the other babies didn't make it, right? Mm -hmm. So I started, you know, doing some things like, well, I mean, you can drink red raspberry leaf tea all through your red leaf tea, but I was like doubling up. I was doing a lot of walking, (laughs) anything that I could just figure out on my own from the internet. (laughs) I was trying to kind of get things started. And I went into a regular appointment, my 38-week appointment. My doctor was well aware of my anxieties. We talked about it every time, you know, I was there. And it's like, I'm ready. You know, I'm 38 weeks now. This is full term. You know, we can be ready. And she was like, well, let's do a cervical exam and see where you are. She did a cervical exam and sweat my membranes. It was a surprise. I would definitely have said, please sweep my membranes if I had known that Mm -hmm. would be my choice, but it wasn't. It was, it was a surprise. So when you say a surprise, she did not tell me that she was going to do it before. Mm -hmm. And how did you find out that that was done just because it was more painful than a regular cervical check? I talked about it afterwards. I was like, what just happened? I swept your membranes. Let's see if that gets labor started. So common in our city anyway. With care providers. It really is. And, you know, there are a lot of scenarios where you you might not want that done. Mm -hmm. But anytime asking for consent before you perform a medical procedure is important. Absolutely. There's a lot of trust in that relationship between an OB and a patient. Mm -hmm. And even if, even though it was something that I would have consented to, it changed the way that I felt about my safety with that provider. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you weren't given any choice. Right. Right. So yes, I was 38 weeks in one day. She stripped my membranes in the afternoon. We had tickets to Glen Gary, Glen Ross on Broadway with Al Pacino. I was having contractions like as soon as I left the doctor's office and a little spotting. And, you know, my husband was at work. You know, I texted him that exciting text. I was like, something's happening. He's like, are we still going to the show? I'm like, of course we're going to the show. We have tickets. We always go to the show for which we have tickets. Nothing will keep us from the show. <laughs> Diehard um, theater goers. <laughs> right. Um, so we went to the show and the contractions didn't really start getting strong until like after the intermission. 
So the last half of the show, I don't remember any of it. We were in like the back row. So I could kind of stand up a little bit, you know, and nobody, I was squeezing my husband's hand for every contraction just to let him know that there was one there, you know, just like, Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. It's kind of been like a fun, Oh, there's something happening kind of, you know, way. And does Uh, he remember anything from the show? No, (laughs) I wouldn't think he would either. We don't remember anything. We were (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's more exciting things happening in my body <laughs> during the show. <laughs> Much more important things going on. Right. <laughs> um, we got on the subway and went home. Um, and Ken took this picture of me in the subway. It's so blurry, but I'm like smiling, like laughing. You know, I was just being all nervous. But we don't have hardly any pictures of our labor. This is it's something I regret. I wish I could go back and like take pictures of things that happened. But we got home, and as soon as we got home from the show, I was, like, nesting. And my nesting task that I just had to do, you know how this happens. Like, it's just, like, this one thing that I have to get done before the baby does. I had an email draft that I had written where Ken would just have to plug in the wait and the time. And I wanted to make sure everybody's email address was in the email that needed to be notified right away that whose feelings wouldn't get hurt, you know, if they weren't in the- <laughs> Uh-huh. I was obsessed with getting that email done. And uh, Ken went to bed. It's like, you go to bed. I'm going to you know, sit here and make sure this email is right. And I did that. And I just kind of walked around the apartment for a while. And we're just piddling. We're putting laundry away, making sure the dishes were clean. At some point after midnight, the contraction started getting pretty, pretty strong. And I was really enjoying being alone. For some reason, like you never know how you're going to labor, right? All the things that I learned in my childbirth ed class, you know, we had this tennis ball that I was sure I was going to want him to rub on my back. And I didn't want anybody to touch me when I was actually in labor. You just never know. Right. But I was enjoying kind of being alone. So I, I labored all through the night by myself, just like leaning over the sofa. I finally went into the bathroom and sat on the toilet for a while because that feels so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love the toilet. Yeah, and I got in the bath for a little bit, and hands and knees on the bathroom floor, something about that cold tile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I labored through most of the night, and it was about maybe like 5 in the morning or 5.30 maybe. Ken got up to come check on me. He could kind of hear me. By that point, we lived in a small New York City apartment. There was like no place to hide. But I guess he could hear me kind of moaning and and moving around. Once he got up, I went and laid in the bed because I thought, you know, oh, I've been just walking around. Let me try laying in the bed. And as soon as my head hit the pillow, my water broke. That's a good little cliffhanger moment to take a brief pause for a word from this episode's sponsor. We want to be sure you know that Birth Matters has been teaching interactive, live, virtual group and private classes through the pandemic. And the cool thing is you can participate from anywhere as long as your time zone is compatible with New York Eastern time. Group childbirth classes are the best way to build your confidence and prep for an amazing birth and entry into parenthood. It's also incredibly valuable to connect with other expectant parents to build your very important support system. 
You'll spend quality time with your labor support partner from the comfort of your home on Zoom as you prepare for not only birth, but also for your best possible postpartum recovery, as well as early parenting with classes on lactation and newborn care techniques. We offer all-in-one comprehensive series as well as one-day topical classes. To learn more or to grab your spot, visit birthmattersnyc.com. Okay, back to Allison. So I had my head in the pillow and I like jumped up, you know, two feet on the ground so I didn't get my mattress wet. I know, right? You're like, why couldn't that happen on the tile floor in the bathroom? I was in there for hours. <laughs> we had taken a childbirth ed class at the local yoga studio. And that was pretty much all that we, we knew about laboring was what we learned in the class. And our doctor had told us, you know, you need to start heading to the hospital when you're 511, when the contractions are five minutes apart and they're lasting for a minute or longer and that lasts over an hour. So we were there. My water had broken. We were past 511. It was really time to go. I had been secretly hoping my whole pregnancy that I would somehow have a taxi baby. <laughs> I don't think I can say I've ever met anyone who said they wanted a taxi baby. I love that. <laughs> Gosh, I wanted to have that baby in the taxi. It would be the best case scenario because I would be close to the hospital in case there was something wrong. Uh-huh. I could actually have the baby in the car with nobody else there and I could just be by myself. Or, you know, with Ken and the taxi driver, (laughs) which I'm sure they would have really loved that. But anyway, so we got to the hospital and it was a teaching hospital in New York City, a pretty big teaching hospital. And we got there at about six o'clock in the morning. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm like really in labor at this point. I'm not that verbal anymore. I have like these like just like short periods of complete lucidity and then it goes away, you know, so I can like fill out a form in like two minutes and then I'm just gone, you know, through the contraction and then I come back. But I, I went in, we got checked into triage, like I need a load of paperwork to fill out for some reason. I hate it when they do that. I know, right? Yeah. Really? <laughs> registered in the system. We had the head nurse give me a cup, she'll be pee in the cup. My water had broken. I was in active labor, I went in the bathroom and I guess I peed in the cup, but you know, I held up the cup and it's just like, <laughs> who knows what's pee and what's fluid. And <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was covered with just, it's just dripping. And I had just handed it to her. Yeah, here you go. And she goes, Oh, I guess your water did break. I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. It did. But we stayed in triage longer than I would have Liked. I don't remember exactly how long, but I do remember jumping up on my hands and knees on the, the small little bed that they have in the triage room to try to get through the contractions. They decided to take us to a room because I proved I was in active labor. So we got moved to the to the labor and delivery room. And I love the way you phrased that. I proved to them I was in active labor. <laughs> For sure. So I remember stopping in the hallway on the way to the room. And you know how in hospital hallways, they have these bars that kind of go down the hallway in case somebody needs to hold on. Yeah. Like a handrail kind of thing. Yes. The handrail. But I stopped 
and grabbed the bar and just squatted down on the ground. And I was like, this is amazing. I had like three contractions there in the hall. I couldn't even get to the room. But hanging on that bar was life. <laughs> that's, all, that's the only place I wanted to be was in the hallway on that bar, which was not allowed. But <laughs> now I know. <laughs> we got to our room and I don't remember if they checked. I mean, they, they must have when I was in triage, but I don't remember, you know, what my dilation was or anything. I don't remember any of that. I remember getting to the room my husband and I, and there was a nurse, an older nurse that came in and she sat at a computer in the same room with us. The rooms at this hospital are huge by New York standards. And she was behind me kind of at a station. And, you know, when you're in labor, you're not really aware of your surroundings. So my version of the story is she sat back there and typed like the whole time and didn't say anything to us, which at the time, I kept feeling like, isn't she supposed to do something? But now, as a doula, I'm like, oh, she was just an angel. <laughs> because she was sitting in there just holding space for us and being there if we needed something. All I wanted to do was to stand up and lean over the bed and put my hands on the bed and just rock back and forth. And I did that for hours. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be there, leaning over, laying down didn't feel good, and nothing else felt good. I just wanted to be right there. Some things that I remember that happened during the laboring part was I asked my husband to help me with my hair because my hair was all in my face, and I just wanted it out. And so he tied my hair in a rubber band, like right I'm doing it with my hand. I know you can't see it on a podcast, but it was like a unicorn <laughs> horn, <laughs> which didn't help with the hair in my face thing. It was still hanging there. That ponytail, I remember just being like, I couldn't give any direction. You know, I just had to like live with it <laughs> until I could come back to earth. Uh, but I remember that. And I remember telling my husband that I had to go pee. And I said, Ken, I've got to go pee. And Ken looked at the nurse and was like, she's got to pee. <laughs> and the nurse was like, we'll go pee. <laughs> and we're like, Please. what? <laughs> you can go pee? You know, I had something on my finger, you know, the pulse oximeter. And I had the fetal rate heart monitor. on, And I had a blood pressure cuff. And I had no idea that I could actually walk to the bathroom, <laughs> just unplug and go. We were both like, we can go pee. There's no reason you should have known right. that. You weren't a doula yet, right? <laughs> right. My husband and I were talking about this the other day. He was just like, you know, we just did, didn't know you could do anything. And I think a lot of people enter a hospital like that. What can I do? Well, it turns out you can do whatever you want. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. Just do it and they'll tell you if they have a problem with it. That's, that's the best advice because you can. You can do anything. So anyway, we went to the bathroom. I remember going to the bathroom and there was another bar in the bathroom. One just like the one in the hallway. And I was like, oh my God, I hung on that bar and had some contraction that felt so good. At some point during the labor, the 
nurses felt that, or maybe the doctors, I'm not really sure. Um, I did not see my provider the whole time I was there or anybody from their office, but somebody decided that the heart rate monitors were slipping because I was moving too much. They decided to use an internal heart rate monitor, which is a device that they put in the baby's head so they can monitor the heart rate directly from the baby instead of trying to go through the stomach. Those heart rate monitors that kind of fit around the waist are not great. They slide around. Pregnant people are not very still unless they have an epidural. Right, right. (laughs) So somebody's out there and wants to make some really great technology. I know they have some wireless ones now. Anyway, they put in the heart, the internal heart rate monitor. And that's continuous from that point forward, right? Right. And so from that point forward, I had the heart rate monitor on her body and I was allowed to continue laboring. At some point, (laughs) it's like all amnesia, right? It's just like you go to another planet. I remember the nurse suddenly saying, are you pushing? She just kind of jumped up and said, are you pushing? To me, what I was doing was not pushing. Now that I'm a doula, I know that noise. It's a very, very special noise. It's like the low kind of, uh, right at the end of a kind of a moan, you get that. uh. Mm -hmm. So I was actually pushing. I just didn't really know that that's what was happening. So, you know, of course, this is like my memory of the event. I know I keep saying that, but in my mind, what happened next? Was it turned into like that scene from E.T. when everybody comes in with their hazmat suits on and they turn on the bright lights? Yes. So I even lay in quietly in my dark room all alone. And then all of a sudden, you know, 20 people came in. They wanted me to get on the bed on my back. The doctor who was in front of me had on a like the full face mask, everything. You know, I don't know how many people were actually in there, and Kim couldn't remember either, but it felt like a lot. might have been three, but it felt like 20. That's when the directed pushing started. Hold your breath. All right, count to 10. You go, one, two. So I pushed out Zoe as hard and fast as I could because it felt like an emergency. Because so many people came in, or why did it feel like an emergency to you? Because they were yelling. Everybody was like, let's go. Let's get the baby out. It felt urgent. Mm. So Zoe came. <laughs> Long story short. <laughs> Zoe came pretty quickly. I didn't push very long. She was five pounds, seven ounces. Itty bitty. Tiny, tiny little thing. My goodness. Uh, you know, I was 38 weeks plus two at that point. So she was full term. She's just a little, little thing. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, when Zoe came out, the internal heart rate monitor that was attached to her head cut her back. Cut her on oh my the goodness! On the way out, and so she had a gash on her back that was about I don't know four or five inches long, which is a real bummer. Ken and I were both really upset about that. We didn't want the internal heart rate monitor. Oh goodness! I had a, a small superficial tear, which is probably from the heart rate monitor as mm-hmm. well. But other than that, once once Zoe came out and they gave her the thumbs up, you know, everybody left and we were alone <laughs> again, which was great. Did they have to take the baby across the room? I kept it close where I could see her the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Because with the internal monitor, usually peds has to come check them out. And especially if there was a wound on her back. Yeah. The pediatrician was in there when she was born. Mm-hmm. But 
and she did not need stitches. Oh, good. So they oh. gave her the thumbs up. But one of the things that I was really worried about was them taking the baby away from mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Both Ken and I were hyper vigilant that that was not going to happen. So she was with me the whole, the whole rest of the time, which is great. They moved us to a postpartum room after a couple of hours. And when we were on the way to the postpartum room, the hospital staff that were, they push you on a stretcher at that point. They don't want you walking around. (laughs) But they were talking about a hurricane that was heading to New York City. And that was the first I remember hearing about it. It's like, there's a hurricane heading to New York City? Really? Hmm. That's so unusual. So this was, Zoe was born on a Thursday. So we stayed one night in the hospital. We got out on Friday. It was the strangest thing leaving the hospital with a brand new baby. Because you feel like somebody's going to like stop you. It's daunting, (laughs) right? (laughs) Are you sure you trust us with this little baby? There was no test. Yeah. Yeah. I remember walking past the security guard, like, okay, let's see what happens. We were taking a taxi home from the hospital. I remember getting outside of the hospital and either the taxi line was a little further than I expected it to be, or my husband saw one that was a little further. I was like, come on, let's go get it. You know, so we ran up the block about about half a block. I remember being very frustrated that I had to run. I would think so. <laughs> anyway, we got a cab. We lived in the West Village at the time, and we were taking a taxi back to our home. We got on 7th Avenue and would need to cross over to 6th Avenue, and they had closed down the street for uh, filming. For uh, I, w- I wish I had taken a picture of the sign so I knew exactly what it was, but it was a uh, filming of a show or a you know, movie or something. So we ended up having to walk two blocks to the apartment. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We got out and walked to our apartment and got home. We got all settled in and we were so glad to be home. You know, by that time that we, we had heard more about the hurricane, it was like, spoiler alert, it was Hurricane Sandy. Oh was- my goodness. Wow. Yeah, heading towards New York. So we were home on Friday. Hurricane didn't hit until Monday. So we had a few days. We didn't expect anything from Hurricane Sandy, really. We had had another hurricane earlier in the year and nothing had really happened. So we were like, okay, we're just not going to be really worried about this. One of my friends had had a home birth and she recommended um, that I get my placenta encapsulated. So that was the other thing. After Zoe was born, we were like, don't take the baby and give us the placenta. (laughs) The person that was going to encapsulate our placenta, she had called and said, you know, I better come on Sunday because we just don't know what to expect about the hurricane. I was like, that sounds great. She came over on Sunday. It was Jen from Baby Caravan. How fun. Jen Mayer, right? uh, Jen Mayer. She came over and... Yeah, I was at home. Ken had run to the grocery store because he knew somebody else was going to be there. I remember her being in the house and she was preparing my placenta and I was in my bedroom just with the baby. And I remember just like being so happy she was there and like really wanting to ask her if she could stay. (laughs) Just like, can you stay? 
can you be my postpartum doula? <laughs> you know, because I did not hire a doula, a birth doula, or a postpartum doula. I just, I really didn't know how much I would need one. And I really didn't understand a lot about what they did that was special. Now I know. That's really amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just remember that feeling of just seeing her in my kitchen, like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to be cool, but I really want her to stay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm locking the door now. <laughs> You're not leaving. Sorry. <laughs> she had a calming presence. I felt comfortable. Everything just felt safer. <laughs> so we decided to have people over on Sunday night to meet the baby because I don't know why. We figured it was easier to have everybody as a group you know, than one at a time. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, I tell my clients all the time, don't feel like you have to do that. You can do this a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now, but it was a lot. There's a picture Ken took of me trying to breastfeed Zoe under one of those muslin blankets, sitting on the floor in my living room, surrounded by friends, most of which were childless. (laughs) (laughs) I still have that picture of me just like, Breastfeeding at the very beginning, especially with your first baby, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's really tough. Yeah. I'm trying to do it with a blanket on your head. It's not. <laughs> I know, right? I, I know. I, I was a lot more modest back then, not in labor, but in breastfeeding, I was. And now I'm like, why? Why would I feel like I always had to cover up? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, by the time the second one came along, I was just naked all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, you know, Monday morning, hurricane hit. We were in the West Village and we lost power and did not have power for five days while we waited for everything, you know, to kind of come back. And Ken and I remember it as this like wonderful experience because it was just like the whole world stops and it was just us and our little baby. When you've got a a newborn, time kind of stops anyway. So you go to sleep when it's dark, (laughs) you know, you wake up when it's light. Mm -hmm. The apartment that we lived in, we had this like rinkety deck that was on the roof, (laughs) a grill, like a propane grill. So we were able to cook the stuff from my freezer. I filled up my freezer, by the way, and made friends come over to make freezer meals because for some reason I thought I was going to starve when Seamless Web works great in New York City. <laughs> but that was like one of my nesting things. I was like, we got to make everything for that. <laughs> so we had to eat, you know, as much of that as we could before it, yeah. it was bad. But we just stayed at home. We played Scrabble. We cooked. And we just sat around. Sounds a little similar to pandemic times, doesn't it? A return to simplicity. Right. The The biggest downside was that, you know, we couldn't charge our cell phones. Mm. So we didn't have any way to contact, you know, my parents who were terrified. They live in Georgia. Oh, yeah. So far away. And even friends that wanted to come check on us couldn't call. And we found out that our door buzzer doesn't work if there's not power. Oh, no. Right. So we didn't have any way to hear if there were people actually there. We actually, we saw some friends of ours stood out in front of our apartment for, I, I don't even know how long. And I saw <laughs> them 
outside of the window. We were on the third floor. I'm like, oh my gosh, we were friends. And we're able to go down and let them in. But we were on Sixth mm-hmm. Avenue, like right by Washington Square. Mm-hmm. So the only thing open was the bodega. Of course, mm-hmm. any bodegas. Mm-hmm. They will stay open through anything. Um, yeah. The bodega was open by candlelight. There was a, a Spanish restaurant in our building that was Seamus Mullins' restaurant called Tertulia. And he opened one night during the, the power outage because he had a freezer full of food, too, that was, you know, not going to make it. And he opened and we took three-day-old or however old Zoe in her first restaurant experience at Tertulia. <laughs> He, he was so nice to do that. It was just the people in the neighborhood came in and we ate by candlelight. Whatever he could make, he had a wood-burning pizza oven. Mm-hmm. That was like a really cool experience. But I was a first-time parent and I was like scared. I was breastfeeding. Like, is she getting enough? I was just so worried about her. We had our first pediatrician's visit, you know, three days after we got home and the pediatrician's office was in Chelsea on 25th street. And we didn't know if our appointment would still be on or if they had lost power. Hmm. We didn't have a cell phone or any way to, to, to find out really. So we decided just to go. We just decided to go and the subways weren't running and there weren't any taxis coming down to where we were. And we walked from about West 8th Street to, to 25th and the power had come on at 24th Street and my pediatrician was on 25th Street so we got there right at 24th Street there was a bodega there and they had extension cords all out on the sidewalk where people were plugging in their cell phones to get power <laughs> you know, to get uncharged up uh-huh. but we were able to get to the, the pediatrician she gave us the two thumbs up you know that's all I wanted. It was just like somebody said, you're doing it. You're doing Yay. it. But yeah, it was such an unusual experience. The biggest downside besides us not having our cell phones was I didn't have hot water for a shower. Oh, those showers are important, right? In those early days, especially. Uh, that was messed up. <laughs> Cold showers. Oh, no thanks. Some people like them, but... Yes, when it's hot, maybe. Okay, we're going to leave it there for today, and we'll pick up next week where we left off with Allison's second baby's conception journey and birth story. I wanted to just briefly talk about two quick things that came up in today's episode. First, sweeping membranes. What is this? This is a procedure that a lot of OBs and midwives do to try to get labor started. And as you heard in this episode, it's very common, at least here in New York City, for care providers to sweep your membranes without even mentioning that they're going to do it. And, you know, there is some question over whether that's really ethical or whether they should do that. Many of us think that uh, before anything's done to our body, especially something that is as aggressive as sweeping the membranes, that we should be given a heads up and an option as to whether we want that to happen or not. 
So what does this mean? What are they doing when they sweep or strip the membranes? Those are interchangeable terms. It is an outpatient procedure that it can be done at any prenatal visit, whereby a care provider will go into the opening of the cervix and separate the bag of waters from the lining of the cervix. This stimulates the production of prostaglandins and in some cases can help a person's body go into labor within about 24 hours. It doesn't usually kick labor immediately into gear, but if it's going to work, usually it'll kick labor into gear into about 24 hours. You might see some spotting in those hours before labor officially starts. You might have some kind of just crampiness, but usually somewhere in the ballpark of 24 hours or so, things will kick into gear if it's going to work. This is something that a care provider could try more than once if it didn't work the first time. There is a small risk of rupturing the membranes when this procedure is done, but hopefully you're working with a care provider who has you know done this a lot, is very experienced, and therefore is hopefully less likely to accidentally rupture the membranes. The cervix does have to be at least a little bit dilated, at least around like a centimeter or so dilated for this to be physically possible. This is something that some pregnant people choose to request to have done if they know that they're going to be induced soon as one way of trying to avoid an otherwise pharmaceutical induction. And just one more thing I want to say back to what happened to Allison, where a care provider might do it without bringing it up. One thing I recommend that you discuss with your care provider, if that kind of idea of having something done to your body without your knowledge or consent, if that bothers you, you may want to request to your care provider in your prenatal discussions, say, I would feel safest if you would please let me know before you do anything to my body, whether that's prenatally or in labor or after the birth. I recommend framing it this way with the whole I will feel safest phrase with the thinking that I would like to think that you're working with a care provider who wants you to feel safe so that if you make this specific request, chances are better that your care provider will be all the more communicative because they know this is what you prefer. Remember that everyone's different so that your care provider can only honor your preferences if you express what really matters to you personally. On the topic of a principle Allison and I talked about of better to ask forgiveness than permission, it bears repeating, get up and go to the bathroom if you need to, move into another position if you need to. Believe me, the staff will tell you when they come in if they're not okay with it. Truly better to ask forgiveness than permission because asking for permission is just asking for a prompt no, when in reality it's likely fine. Unless there are significant medical risk factors that would require you to be in the bed or to be hooked up to things and be less able to move around or go to the bathroom, in a healthy low-risk labor, there's no medical necessity for you to be restricted all the time. And it can actually slow your labor down to be as restrictive as many hospitals are, as well as make it a lot harder to cope with the strong sensations of labor. This is one of many great benefits of having a doula with you for your labor to help you discern when it is okay versus when it's not okay to sort of break the rules, so to speak. Last little tip I just want to point out, based on Allison talking about how much paperwork they were giving her to do in labor, double check with your birthplace that you have done any and all paperwork that you can possibly take care of well in advance of the big day. The paperwork you have to complete in labor should be as minimal as humanly possible because it's just disruptive to the process and annoying as all get out. Some hospitals are better about this than others, but always worth double checking. 
We'll pick up where we left off next week with Allison's second IVF and birth story. I heard a phrase this week that I'll leave you with today. Moments of pain can bring a lifetime of joy. Thanks so much for listening to the Birth Matters podcast. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.